All right, y'all, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, good to see everybody. Welcome to week two of Church for Monday. You've already survived one week. Woo! Um, I promise I'll do that every week. I promise. Um, yeah, seriously, thanks for making the time again and joining us. For those of you who are new tonight, welcome. We're glad to have you. And so if you have any questions about anything you missed last week, you can chat with people at your table. Um, you should have a journal at your table in case, if you were not here last week. And so, um, but again, it's so, so good to be with you all. Um, did anybody not get the homework assignment email last week? Did anybody not get it? Dan didn't get it? Okay, you sure? Okay, okay. <laughs> I should have known that. That's on me for, for not, yeah, for believing you. Um, okay, good. So if you have any questions, let me know. Um, so here, here's what we're going to do tonight. Um, so last week we kind of looked at uh, this unpacking this metaphor of Monday. Monday is this metaphor for all of life. And if you recall, we mentioned how the next seven weeks in Church for Monday is going to be focused around um, unpacking the, the seven marks of discipleship, of, of what a maturing, growing disciple in Christ looks like, a disciple who is ready and equipped to follow Jesus in their Monday life. And tonight we are looking at and, and putting our attention on the mark of takes up the cross. That's where our focus and attention will be on tonight. But before we jump into that, uh, I want to pray for our, our time together. Uh, we're going to do a bit of a recap of last week, uh, and then we'll continue on. So let's take a moment uh, to pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you uh, that you have made every moment holy, that this time that we are in, this space that we are in, um, is holy, not because it is a church, but because you are present with us. And Lord, in fact, every space that we enter into as people who have your spirit at work within us, we enter into holy spaces for you go with us. And so Lord, would you equip us now in this time to hear from you as we understand the truth of what it means to take up our cross, to follow you, to deny ourselves, and to live fully into the life that you have called us to through Christ Jesus. So may this time be edifying to us, may it encourage us, strengthen us, challenge and convict us as we are uh, sent out living in the places that you have called us uh, for the good of our neighbors and the glory of your name. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, um, so last week, uh, again, we were unpacking this metaphor of Monday, and our big idea was that your Monday matters to God, and as a result, God should matter to your Monday. Uh, we were kind of, uh, kind of deconstructing the idea that the Christian life is really just about uh, our Sunday life, our spiritual life. God has much more in store and, and planned for us in, in terms of the mission he's called us to. And so last week, your Monday matters to God, so God should matter to your Monday. Uh, I'd just love to maybe just take a few seconds, if you'd love to share uh, with, with kind of our whole group, what were some, some takeaways, some highlights for you, maybe a question you had or, or something that kind of hit you afresh, or maybe it was your 30-second takeaway, if you recall, we did that at the end of our session last time. But yeah, what were some highlights, takeaways from our time together last week? Anybody willing to share a personal highlight from last week? Yes, Rebecca. Uh, so I think we struggled a little bit through talking about like the one thing the church can do for us. Yeah. And um, we sort of talked out and our uh, takeaway there was that church provides a space um, for us to have connections that give us spiritual boost. So like they provide space for, to create relationships and connections and those are the things that actually give like spiritual boost throughout the week. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you, having a space where you can know and be known in such a way that you're not just you're not just in community, but you have people who are able to hold you accountable, to encourage you, to even solidify and clarify things that are, that are taught in the church and that, that's kind of solidified within community. That's great. That's great. What else? Yeah. 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 I, I, that, that word integrate is a beautiful word. It's one of my favorite words. We're going to talk more about that next week, I believe, in the Yoke Lecture. Maybe in, in, maybe we'll see. We'll see what Nathan comes up with. Uh, but, but the idea of integration it is, is a perfect word to capture what we kind of mean by this Monday life. This idea of bringing all of our existence together. Even that word in, integrate, the, the root word is integer, a whole, whole, whole number, complete, no division, no fraction. That's the life that God has designed for us to live, an integrated life. That's beautiful. What else? Well, maybe one other takeaway from last week. Yeah, right here, Abby. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's not something just to kind of endure and get through, but, but Monday is an opportunity we have to, we get to serve and be on mission in the places God has called us. I love that. I love that. Okay, so, so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to kind of continue on in this, this Monday metaphor a bit in looking at the mark takes up our cross. But, but what I want us to look at is Monday is where, and it continues on what we looked at last week, but Monday is where we all need hope. I think we are all keenly aware of the fact that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. The world is broken. The world is fractured. It's been disintegrated in some ways. And, and we understand and see that most acutely in the places we spend the majority of our time in our Monday life. And, and, but, and so there's a reason why when you think about, I mean, think back to Monday morning when your alarm went off at whatever time, if you have an alarm, like did you burst out of bed and say, huzzah, it's Monday. Like, I mean, odds are you may have, you know, shouted out another word that would, is not heard in Disney movies, but, but we, we tend to not have a very positive association with Monday like we talked about last week. And we see Monday as more laborious, as, as challenging, as filled with um, difficulty and hardship and trials. And again, my guess is we don't typically enter into Monday with an eager expectation to see God at work. And, and that's really what we're trying to unpack together. And so here's what, though, what I want to ask. In some ways, it's a simple question, but why are our Mondays hard? Why, why is there difficulty in our Monday life? And you can speak broadly, you can speak specifically, but why do we find difficulty in our Monday life? What are the challenges and why do we find it difficult to face what we face on Monday? What's that? Okay, you feel stuck. S say a little bit more of that. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. You, you feel like you're in this double bind. Like you don't necessarily want to go to the place that maybe you're you're called to serve and work, and yet not going also has its own set of problems, and so you feel stuck. That's a good word, Alex. Yeah, yeah. John, you had one. Yeah, absolutely. And so if we don't have healthy rhythms of work and rest, of engagement and disengagement, we can find that the re-entrance into Monday is exhausting if we're not resting properly. That's, that's huge. That's huge. What else? What are some other reasons why we find Monday to be difficult and exhausting and draining? Yeah, Emily. Sometimes we're not instantly gratified by the work we're doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so depending on your industry, you may have a hard time seeing direct results of what you do. And, so, and especially if you're far removed from maybe the end user of, of what you're producing or contributing to, or if you're raising kids or dealing with grandkids, it's like, that's really hard to see uh, what the work you're doing is contributing to some kind of end goal. Absolutely. What else? What's maybe another challenge? What, what are the difficulties we face on Monday? Why are Mondays so hard? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when you see it as something just to get through rather than something you get to do, that does produce a, a great challenge to us and we can lose purpose and meaning in our work. Absolutely. That's good. That's good. So, so again, th this, this word that Emily, you mentioned of, of integrating, I think is such an important word because the opposite is also so prevalent in our world of disintegration. We experience disintegration in various places in our life a sense in which things are not connected and whole as they're intended to be. And, and this should be no surprise to us as people who are familiar with the biblical narrative is that our world is fractured. We, when we talk about the story of scripture, which we'll unpack in a couple weeks, uh, the grand narrative of scripture, we know that our, we live in a broken and fallen world. But I think it's a more helpful way to describe the brokenness we see in our world through that word of disintegration, that things are no longer connected in the way that they're supposed to be. And we feel that. And so would someone, and again, this is maybe a familiar passage, but would someone read Genesis 3, 17 through 19? Someone have their Bible open. Would someone read Genesis 3, 17 through 19? Who's got it? Okay, Judy, go ahead. And so, so that's beautiful, Judy. Thank you. So, so what we see here in, in this narrative of why we feel this sense of, of disintegration and brokenness in our world is, is a curse of, of sin and the rebellion against God that all of us are guilty of. And again, we'll unpack some of this narrative more in week four. But we feel the thorns and the thistles of work, uh, whether they are quite literal thorns and thistles or proverbial thorns and thistles. We feel the brokenness and disintegration of, of our work lives, of our home lives, of our community, etc. Uh, and that brings us what, to this big idea that I want us to look at. And so the mark we're looking at is we, uh, we take up our cross. But, but if there's one kind of big idea that I want us to grasp and take from our time tonight, it's this, is that your Monday is hopeless without Jesus. Your Monday is hopeless without Jesus. And, and, and this, is, this is where we, we're trying to, again, connect the dots between what we believe on Sunday and how it relates to and connects to everything about our lives on Monday. When we tend to think of the hope of Jesus, we sometimes sequester that only to the spiritual realm, the moral realm, uh, our private religious realm. But the, the scope of what God is doing and has done through Christ uh, is more than just our privatized religious lives. It has the entirety of our lives in mind. So, so that's what we're going to look at. Your Monday is hopeless without Jesus. 
So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to our tables for our first round of discussion. Now you have, there's a bonus discussion round right now. And so really what I want you to do, because we have some new folks who weren't here with us last week, I'd love for each of you to go around and introduce yourself. But then we are, if you were able to do this, and there's, this is, there's grace here, we're gonna do our scripture memory together. So if you recall our, our passage, our memory passage from Luke 9. So after you introduce yourselves, I want you to kind of pair up with somebody and do your memory verse. And it's okay if you didn't get it perfect, that's totally fine. The goal isn't perfection. The goal is discipline and, and, and forming the habit. So go ahead and reintroduce yourselves to each other and then we'll do our memory verse together and then we'll continue on. All right, y'all go ahead and wrap up your conversation if you can, then we'll continue on. All right, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna uh, spend some time um, in the, the section of scripture that uh, your memory verse came from in Luke chapter nine. And uh, the, the first point we're going to kind of unpack together is that part of what it means to take up our cross uh, as a regular habit as followers of Jesus means that we find our only hope in life through death. And that sounds like a paradoxical statement. If that kind of sounds strange and backwards and upside down, uh, it's, that's on purpose. Um, and, and this is very much a pattern of how Jesus teaches that we're gonna look at in Luke chapter nine. And so, so what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna read Luke 9, Luke 9, 18 through 27. So if you have your Bibles open, go ahead and turn there. And we're gonna spend a little bit of time unpacking this passage and this pivotal teaching of Master Jesus. So hear these words from Luke 9, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that he was praying alone and the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, I want to kind of unpack this a little bit. This is, this is a kind of a quintessential text that captures a lot of how Jesus teaches. Jesus tends to teach in forms of offering an invitation into a metaphor and then presents a paradox. This, this is how often how Jesus teaches, invitation into a metaphor and then a paradox that just kind of blows our minds. Um, and so, so what do we see? What's the invitation in this passage? What's the simple invitation that Jesus gives in Luke 9? Did you notice it? Follow me. So very simple invitation. Come follow me. So we, we got that. that. That seems somewhat clear. But there's questions of what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, what is the metaphor that is used in following in, in, into this invitation? What is the metaphor? Take up your cross. Take up your cross. 
which, which if you've kind of been around church, you might not think of that as a metaphor. No, the cross is a very, it's, it's truth and it's symbolic of, of the, the Christian faith, but, but the, the cross is very much a metaphor, is a symbol of death that Jesus is using to illustrate how we find life. And what is the paradox then of what Jesus teaches? Say it again, Alyssa. Save it, we'll lose it. Yeah. He who saves his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. And again, this is a very common way that Jesus tends to teach. And, and what's interesting is before this, he, he asks a rather simple question. Who do the crowd say that I am? And, and, and it seems like just kind of an interesting, like, hey, I'm just, you know, like, what's, what's, you know, the popular opinion out there? Uh, what's on my Wikipedia page? And, and they give some theories, like, well, some people say this, some people say this, but then notice how Jesus moves the question from the crowds to who do you say that I am? A very personal question. And in many ways, the answer to what does it mean to take up our cross daily is actually answered is, is in how we answer this question. Who do we say that Jesus is? And this isn't a question that we simply answer once and receive salvation and then we're good and move on. We continue to answer this question. As followers of Jesus who are prepared to follow Jesus in all of life, we should be asking this question regularly, who do we say that Jesus is? Not just in what we declare, but who do we say that he is and how we conduct our lives? And again, many ways, the, the, the act of answering this question is what it means to take up our cross. And Peter doesn't hesitate. He gives that answer that you're the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, and, so, and so Peter answers correctly, but Peter doesn't exactly know fully what he's even meaning in saying this because Peter has an idea that the promised Messiah would come in military political power to restore the nation of Israel. And Jesus is a very different kind of king, a very upside down king who presents a very upside down kingdom. And so Jesus affirms that he's right, but he kind of explains what kind of king and what kind of kingdom that he's bringing. And he does that through the invitation, the metaphor, and the paradox. And again, this is a very similar thing. We'll see this, um, we see this in the great invitation of Matthew 11, that Jesus invites all who are weary to come to him and to enter into the yoke. There's the metaphor. And we find the paradox, which is that, that uh, the idea that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, which we'll uh, unpack a little bit more next week. Uh, but what we see in this metaphor and in this invitation and paradox in Luke 9 is Jesus explaining what kind of king and what kind of kingdom he is bringing and what kind of life his followers are to live and model. And it is a kingdom that is expressed and modeled through death and sacrifice, through giving up of ourselves, through conquering by being conquered. And so what I want to do, Ben, would you cue up this video for really, first really quick? And so what I, what I want us to see is that there's this idea of how the kingdom that Jesus presents models for us what it means to be a disciple who's ready for all of life, who takes up our cross and follows after Jesus. And I want to show this, this brief video by the Bible Project. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, I highly encourage you to check them out. They have great resources. But this video kind of captures a bit what the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. So let's take a look and see this upside down nature of the kingdom. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, the great kingdom in and all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remain in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. 
Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger. And he's running towards the city. He's running, he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet. Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. And so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, powerful, successful kingdom that needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down so, so again, the, the idea here is that the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating and bringing in and, and kind of foreshadowing in the teachings in the gospel is a kingdom that is very different from what his disciples were expecting and even what we often would expect as we think about power, might, conquering, and victory. And so what we see is that living with and for Jesus as citizens of his upside-down kingdom means that we receive life by taking up his cross for us initially, finding life through his death, which we'll unpack a little bit more, but also by daily taking up our cross and continuing to live in this pattern and way of life. And so what we, what we believe is that the cross symbolizes our only hope in life and death, that through Christ Jesus is life, death, and resurrection. We find hope in life through his death. But the cross is not just the pathway to life. It is also a pattern of life. That, that's kind of what we want to see with this mark, that the cross is not just the pathway to life. It is a pattern for how we are to live all of life. Which is why Jesus, even before he goes to the cross, is patterning and model, modeling for his disciples the life that is to be lived in light of the kingdom he's bringing. And it is a life that is marked by taking up our cross. Now, here, here's what I want to do. I want to kind of spend some time discussing together here. What does that mean? Because that sounds kind of like churchy language. If you've been around church, you've probably heard that phrase, take up your cross. But, but what comes to mind when you, when you hear that phrase, let's try to get some, some practical application of this. When we hear the phrase, take up your cross and follow me, take up your cross daily, what, what does that mean? What, what ideas, what actions, what concepts come to your mind with, the, uh, with taking up your cross? What comes to mind? 
Yeah, sacrificing for others, being not, not just sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice, but there's a goal in mind for the sake of those other than yourself. What else? What else comes to mind? Okay, yeah. Well, uh, say more about that, Lindsay. What, what does that mean? Not just being happy for the good things, but also the hard things and the things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not just uh, a tolerance for hardship, but it's, it's, a, it's a, in some ways a grateful reception of difficulty that we know forms us and shapes us. It's a recognition that, that the cross is a pattern for our life and is for our good. That's a really great way of, of describing that. What else? How else would you describe this, this mark of taking up our cross? Yeah, yeah. So, so not only just a willingness, but also a recognition that, okay, if Christ is calling me to this pattern and habit of daily taking up my cross, sacrificing for the sake of others, I can trust and take courage that it's not going to completely destroy me because if this is the pathway to life, I can have courage in it. That's great. That's great. Submitting your day to God. Yeah, yeah. Because if you notice, though, I mean, what does Jesus say? Take up your cross daily. It's a recognition that everything that you're facing in your day should be understood in light of this mark, that we are to first and foremost see our lives as being sacrificed for the sake of others and not simply meeting our own personal needs. That's not necessarily a bad thing and they're not always mutually exclusive, but we should have this primary lens of, am I willing on a daily basis to give of myself for the sake of others? Now, there's many ways that we could kind of define this, but let me offer just, just one helpful way of thinking about the habit of daily taking up our cross. And what I would say is it is that, uh, I'll, I'll try to write it out. It's the daily habit. Let me take my notes here. The daily habit of willingly accepting the high costs of following Jesus. Fall, I did not spell that right. Taking up our cross is the act of the daily habit of willingly accepting the high costs of following Jesus. And so, so what's kind of baked into this statement is a recognition that following Jesus does have costs. There are risks involved. Uh, and so, and, but as, as Trey shared, that there's, there's a courage that comes with that that the life that we are invited into is not a life of ease and comfort. We're going to talk a little bit more as we unpack uh, the book of James starting this Sunday. But what we see is that the life that we are invited into is not a life of ease and comfort. It is a life of sacrifice and cost, but it is a, also a life, that, a pathway of life that brings us into the fullness of life. And so, so this is the primary way that we continually receive and respond to the good news of Jesus. When we think about the message of Christ, and his hope for us in his gospel, that is not simply the message that we believe and move on and past, but rather is a message we continually bring ourselves back to, which is in part of what it means to take up our cross daily, to be brought back to the truth of Christ's cross on our behalf, and then also in light of that, what it means for us to live. And so, so what, we want us, what I want us to see is that this is the primary way that we live in light of the message of Christ, by taking up our cross daily, willingly accepting the high costs of following him. Not just believing him, but following him. Now, 
So this is kind of the the posture as we think about following Jesus, the primary posture of following Jesus is having this idea of taking up our cross, surrendering the wholeness of our lives to him. But there there are two primary ways in which we stray from this daily posture of following Jesus and living all of life before him. And, and they're, they're, the, the two kind of negative ways or two ways in which we stray from this way of living can be summarized by the words religion on one side and irreligion on the other. Religion and irreligion. Uh, Tertullian, uh, the great church father in the first century, described how these are the two primary ways that we kind of stray from Jesus um, in subtle and not so subtle ways. He says this, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between these two errors, the errors of religion on one side and irreligion on the other. And let me explain what I mean by that. Religion is basically the idea that I can be good enough in order to be accepted by God through how I live and perform my life. It's essentially kind of summarized that, that through what I do, I can perform and live my life in a moral way and earn a right standing before God. Irreligion, on the other hand, maybe this is the one that's more an obvious way in which we stray, is that I want to live my life free of any kind of boundaries or restrictions. That the pathway to the good life is to be free and unencumbered from from any kind of restrictions, be they religious, moral, etc. I want to be free of any kind of religious pressure, and that is the way in which we find life. And, And both of them are actually antithetical to the message of the gospel and the pattern of daily taking up our cross and following after Jesus. They both reject the idea that God is the one who brings freedom to us. And And again, this is the one we're probably like, yeah, I kind of get this. Like, this is kind of a slap in the face to God. Like, you, like, I want to be free of anything and reject the fact that you have any intention of my good. But this is maybe where some of us probably fall into the trap more likely. The idea that the pathway to life, the pathway to finding wholeness and meaning and integration is through being religiously and morally good and upright. And this actually is also antithetical to the message of Jesus because it puts all of the pressure and all the focus back upon us. And in, in, in fact, the, the best uh, parable that kind of captures this is the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. If you're familiar with that story, it's the story that Jesus is telling, kind of capturing the, the radical nature of God's love, his fatherly love. And this, the story is that uh, this man had two sons. One son basically said, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. I want to go live my life however I want. He's represented by the irreligious way of, of rejecting the life that we are to live with Jesus. But the older son stays and remains and does everything the father uh, asks of him. But what we find in the story is that while one stayed and did everything he was told and one left and did everything he wanted to do, both were far from the father. And, and I want to, if you're interested now, I want to kind of unpack that a bit more. The book Prodigal God by Tim Keller is a phenomenal book that captures the heart of this message. But I want to just, just share a small excerpt from his chapter uh, that kind of captures this. He says this, the hearts of the two brothers, and referring to the parable of the prodigal son, the hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from under it. They each wanted to get into a position in which they could tell the father what to do. Each one, in other words, rebelled, but one did so by being very bad and the other by being extremely good. 
Both were alienated from the father's heart. Both were lost sons. And I think this is an important understanding that, that the, these are the two ways in which we kind of reject and walk away from God, even when one of them looks like we're, we're within the, the bounds of religious duty. But the, the middle way, the, the right way, the proper way to follow after Jesus in all of life is to have a posture of taking up our cross. It is not through religious duty, but it is a, a posture of wanting to reflect in, na- in response to what Christ has done for us, reflect the nature of Christ who offers his life for us. And so the pattern of taking up our cross, denying ourselves and embracing a posture of sacrifice, not out of a sense of duty and obligation, but in response to what Christ has done is the way in which we live into the life that God has called us to. So, so look, I, w- I want to pause here because I've been kind of going on for a bit. Any questions, comments, or things I can clarify as we think about these two ways in which we reject the pattern and ways in which we fall after Jesus and how taking up our cross is the, the proper approach in following after Christ. Any questions, comments, points of clarification? Okay. Here's what, here's what I want to do now. So um, what I'd like to offer... Is, is as we think about as we think about what it means to take up our cross, again, Jesus is showing us the pathway and the pattern to the life that we want to live. But this cross, this metaphor that Jesus is using is obviously foreshadowing and preparing for us what, for the purpose of why he has come, for the cross that he would be crucified to, that communicates the centrality of what we call the gospel. And so what I want to do for, for this portion of our time together is give a little bit of a, of a definition, a working definition of what this gospel is. So when we think about the cross being the central metaphor of how we find life, that, that life is found through death, what do we mean by this message of the gospel that is symbolized by a symbol of death? And, and here's how I, we would define the gospel. Again, th- there's many ways to kind of describe it, but here's kind of our working definition of what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection which if you trust him above all else, above all others, sorry, saves you from sin and for the renewal of all things. I'll say this again here. It's, uh, if you can read my handwriting, good, good for you. Uh, the, good, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which if you trust him above all others, saves you from sin and for the renewal of all things. Now, now there's a lot kind of in this statement, but, but one of the things that I think is really important for us to grasp is that the gospel message is not simply the work of Jesus rescuing us from something, but also rescuing us for something. And, and this is where sometimes people who have kind of grown up in the church, we, we miss out on the fullness and the scope of what the message of the gospel is. That it is absolutely the rescuing of us from sin, death, and hell, but it is also a rescuing us and saving us for the mission that we are invited into in joining God in the renewal of all things. 
the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which if you trust him above all others, saves, sorry, you from sin and for the renewal of all things. Now, the, the, what, what's, what's really important in understanding this definition is really one of the simplest words is the word news. When we think about what the gospel is, you even heard that in the, in the Bible Project video. What is the gospel? It is fundamentally news. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is not instruction. The gospel is not a moral list of guidelines to follow. Fundamentally, the gospel is news. In fact, the word gospel, which we heard in the video, is rooted in the Greek word euangelion. And, and this word, it actually has more of a military word or a royalty word in describing, it's, it's the declaration of the victory in war. And, and so th this word is really unique because it is not declaring what we must do, it is declaring what has been done. And, and, and the, the, the late theologian and pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he describes the distinction of the gospel and, and the, the, the danger of kind of the trap of religion in this way. He says, advice is counsel about something to do, and it hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. News is a report about something that has happened. You can't do anything about it. It's been done for you, and all you can do is respond to it. And this is absolutely the, under, the fundamental understanding of the gospel. It is first and foremost news that we hear and respond to. And so if you think back again to the meaning of the word gospel, euangelion, it's the report from the battle lines that the victory has been won. And so, so when, when, when the, the armies go into battle and it appears that they are winning, they, the messengers send back to the village the euangelion, the message that the, gospel, that, the, the, that the battle has been won. And so this news is coming back, huzzah, the euangelion is here, the battle is won, let us prepare the celebration and the parade. But when the battle is not going to be won, when it appears that we are going to lose, the messengers don't send the euangelion, they send back advice. They send back the reports of here, like man, man your battle stations because the battle's coming to us. They come back with advice on what we now must do. Cancel the parade because the battle is coming to our home. But the gospel, the good news of Christ is fundamentally news that we receive. And when we trust him, Jesus, the center of the gospel above all others, we are saved from sin, saved from sin and for the renewal of all things. Now, I want to pause here. Any, any questions, comments, or interaction around this definition? Questions, comments, criticisms? It, again, it, it may feel a sense a, a bit like el elementary or basic, but I think it is so vital that if we're to be a people who are marked and shaped by the gospel and who take up our cross daily, we need to know what the central message of that cross is and the implications that that has for how we follow Jesus. And, and so one of the ways I, I try to illustrate this is that when we think of the gospel, it is, it is good news that we hear and receive, but that also commissions us into a life and into a mission that we are invited into. And so the way I like to think about how we think of the gospel is that the gospel is less of a protein smoothie or a vitamin that we take once, and it is more like a banquet table that we come to regularly to feast upon. We, we tend to think of the gospel as this thing that I believe once and then move on past, and I'm good and I'm golden until Jesus returns. But the gospel is actually more of a message that we continue to feast upon and learn and reflect upon more deeply.
Just as a banquet table is meant to come back to to, for celebration and sustenance, that is how the gospel is to function in our lives. And and there's a great, I mentioned Tim Keller, he has this great line that kind of captures this. He says, the gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths, rather it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but it is the A to Z of the Christian faith. And so again, if we are to be a people who are seeking to live out this metaphor that Jesus gives of taking up our cross and following after him, well, we have to have a deep, working, intimate, ongoing knowledge of what this gospel message that centers on the cross is. And so again, if we are to be a people who take up our cross in our Monday lives, we have to know that our only hope in life is to be found in death. And that has deep implications for how we enter into our Monday lives. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to our tables now for, for table discussion. It, it should be number one, or it should be number two, but it's, it's number one on your, on your page. So go to your tables, and the, there's just one question here that we're going to discuss together around how we think about the two ways in which we reject the gospel, of, through religion or through irreligion. So take a few minutes and discuss together. All right, so here's, here's what we're going to do now. So what we've seen kind of thus far is that our, our only hope in life is accomplished through death, that, that, that if we're to be a people who take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. We have to un- have a working knowledge, an intimate knowledge, a daily knowledge uh, of what this gospel is, the truth that through Christ Jesus, we are not only rescued from something, but for something, and that he is our only hope in life and death, and that this message is not simply the message that gets us saved, it is the message that continues to form and shape us as God's people. And, and just, just as a side note, as I was even saying that, what, what came to mind, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul is, is kind of unpacking the centrality of the message of the gospel. And, and he says that, I think this is a really helpful way to even kind of get this idea, kind of, kind of to deconstruct the idea that the gospel is just something we believe in once and then move past. But listen to how Paul says this. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he goes on to say, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now what you notice is the way in which Paul talks about this good news, this, this good news that you received, in which you now stand, and through which you are being saved. You see this past, present, and future reality of this message that we don't just believe in once and we're good. Like I said, like it's not a pill that you swallow once and move past. It is a banquet table feast that we come back to regularly. And that is part of what it means to take up our cross and die daily. To be reminded of this truth. It doesn't mean that Christ is being crucified over and over again for our sins. He died once and for all. But we bring ourselves back to it on a regular basis so that we might uh, might frame and reorient everything about our Monday lives under this message that explains everything about who we are. So so what we've seen is uh, we must find our hope in life through death. Now we turn to this, okay, now if we know this truth, what does it mean that we should embrace a cross-shaped hope for Monday? If this is our only hope in life and death, how does this message shape and influence and impact us as we enter into the challenges that await us in our Monday life? And so if we're going to find hope in Jesus on Monday, 
If Monday is a place where we feel the hopelessness of the world, then we first need to receive and believe this good news that Jesus has died for us in our place. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't stop there. The cross gives us a brand new way to live on Monday, and it is modeled through what, what we would call a humble confidence. A humble confidence, which again kind of sounds paradoxical and backwards, very Jesus-y, if you will. Um, and this is kind of what the gospel does for us, that the gospel simultaneously humbles us, and the gospel also provides a confidence, or even a courage, as you mentioned, right? I think that's a good word, that the gospel pr produces a humility in us, and the gospel also produces a proper confidence in us. So what I want to do is, is together is uh, unpack this a little bit more. How does the gospel, the good news of Christ, how does the gospel humble us? What are the ways in which this message humbles us? What comes to mind when you think of how the gospel brings about humility in those who believe and receive it? How does the gospel humble us? Yeah, Mitch. The word lost. Without Christ. The word lost. So if he is truly our only hope in life and death, then we absolutely recognize there is a desperation and need for him. And so that removes any sense of pride that we can maybe find hope in somewhere else or within ourselves. Yeah, that's good. What else? How else does the gospel humble us? Great, yeah. Say it again. Yeah, yeah. You recognize how far you fall. Yeah, and, and, and in some ways, Jesus, like Jesus comes on the scene and in the, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, he's teaching, but like, hey, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery, don't murder. But I say to you, he like, he actually makes the bar even higher. Like, oh, you think the bar is pretty high? It's actually way higher than that. And, and that's not to shame us or to put us into a place of utter hopelessness, but to awaken us to how desperately we need him. That's absolutely true. How else? How else is the gospel humblest? Yeah, John. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, if, if the gospel message is fundamentally about bringing us into a life that emulates Jesus, who considered the needs of others more important than his own, then we should absolutely have that same posture and modeling. That's great. What else? Maybe, maybe a couple more. How, how does the gospel humble us? Yeah, yeah. If you, I mean, if you think about even, yeah, just the, the legacy, the lineage, the history that we're entering into, that can feel a bit daunting. There's almost, in some ways, it can almost even put this sense of, um, I don't want to say a, a pressure, but, but there's, there's this holy recognition of I'm a part of something larger than myself, you know? It's like, I'm not just, I mean, we're not just a part of a collection of Christians that exist in Olathe, Kansas, or in the United States, or in the world. We're a part of a, a global historic people that has existed for for a long period of time. And so that there is a humility that comes even with that. I, I like that, PJ. That's really good. How about one more? How else does the gospel humble us? Yeah, Logan. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's, it's there. It's not like it's this exclusive club where like, well, I'm very special because I've been loved by God. But, but if, if the gospel is for all peoples, there's, it does kind of eliminate this sense. I mean, there, there's uniqueness in which we are loved by Christ, but when it is for all people, that does kind of remove a sense of, I can boast. I mean, Jesus addresses that even to uh, the nation of Israel. Like, hey, don't, don't think that you're significant because you have Abraham as your father and Moses as your, your prophet. But like, that, that is, not your only, is not your hope in, in your historical familial lineage, but in what Christ has accomplished. 
Now, now let me ask you this, okay? So if this, is, if this is what the gospel does, if this is how the gospel humbles us, how does this change the way we live? If, if this message of the gospel is our only hope in life and death, that we have nothing that we add or contribute, that would be another way in which the gospel humbles us. If it is only by grace, we have, there's no room for pride, there's no room to take credit. How does this change the way in which we live? When this becomes the message that forms us and shapes us, how does this kind of humility change the way we live? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, that, that's probably one of the most humbling things and very practically, I mean, so much of our, of our anxiety and frustrations and disappointments, disappointments in life come from the fact that we fail to grasp the fact that we are not in control. I mean, how, how much ease and peace would we find in our life if we could actually embrace and live into that, I, I, the reality that we are not in control of these things? You know, as much as we want to say it, uh, it is much harder to live into. But when we live in light of this humbling gospel, we are freed from having to be in control. That's great, Jenny, yeah. What else? How, how else does this humbling power of the gospel change us or influence us? Yeah, absolutely. And, and appreciation begets appreciation in other people. And so when you understand, again, the good news, it is grace, it is unmerited, you have, you have an increased capacity to receive and enjoy and delight and be thankful for the gifts that we have received. And that, that, that's absolutely true. Okay, so, and again, we, we could keep going on this, but I think this is an important posture or a, an important perspective, rather, to have of what the gospel does for us. It humbles us. It brings us down to kind of a low place of saying, I contribute nothing to my salvation. There is nothing I can do to add to what Christ has done. It is purely what he has accomplished. And so, so there is a great humility to that. But sometimes that is just kind of where we stop. And, and again, the, the gospel is no less than that. It, it, it absolutely humbles us. But sometimes there can be, in my opinion, uh, a way of emphasizing our our utter brokenness and, and unworthiness to a degree that we actually miss out on what the gospel does in implanting Christ's righteousness to us. That we, yes, we are sinners in need of grace and there's nothing we can do to add to that, but, but let us not neglect or downplay or minimize the fact that through Christ, we are now new creations and that God sees us through the eyes of his son. And that should now give us a proper confidence and that, that's kind of what the gospel, again, it's not one or the other, because I think there's a way of kind of embracing the gospel, like, I'm a worm, I'm nothing, I'm pathetic, and we kind of allow our, our sinfulness to keep us almost in a place of shame, which is really toxic and antithetical to what the, I mean, the gospel came to deliver us from shame, but there's a way if we only stay here, it can also, it can prevent us from receiving and having a gratitude, as Tyler mentioned, of, of, of receiving and delighting in what God has done for us. So, so let me ask this question. How does the gospel instill confidence? I think we, we all had some pretty good answers of, of how it humbles us, but how does the gospel give us confidence? Yeah, Becca. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and, and the fact that if, if, if we've been rescued through the power of God, it's not, he has not just rescued us and displayed his power through his rescue, but that we become the recipients of that very power. That, it, that it's not just God displaying like, hey, check out what I can do and save you by, by my grace. But there's also means by which he is extending his power through the spirit to us. And so it's not just that we are saved from something. It's that we are also saved for something. Okay, how, how, else, how else do we see the gospel instilling a proper confidence in us? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. When you have, I mean, there, there's a sense in which, I mean, if, if you remove the picture of God being sovereign over all things, I mean, that, that produces, that can produce a great sense of, of anxiety and uncertainty about the things that we face in life. But if we trust that God, who is infinitely wise and knows what's best for us, is infinitely loving, desires what's best for us, and is infinitely powerful, is capable of accomplishing what's best for us, well, th there can be a confidence in what he is calling us to. And so we don't have to be constantly living in a state of fear and anxiousness about, is God going to show up? Will he deliver me? Does he have my best interests at heart? And so absolutely that produces a confidence. How else? How else does the gospel produce confidence? Yeah. No condemnation. Yeah. Then the whole like back chunk of it is just that huge like rallying cry for the believers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, there, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, that, that God is working out all things. I mean, so absolutely, there's, there's a confidence in, so again, we're humbled in the fact that we are sinners in need of grace. There's nothing we do. The confidence comes in the fact of what we've been declared, of what God says over us. It's not just that I'm bringing you out of sin and death and hell, but that I'm bringing you into my forever family. You are now adopted. Nathan talked about that, that one of the highest privileges of the Christian life is being declared adopted sons and daughters that we have a new identity, that you are declared beloved. And so there's a confidence. It's not that just God has saved us and rescued us. He has brought us into his family. And so, so being declared beloved gives us a proper confidence that we are part of God's family. And so, so again, again, we can keep going in this, but I think that there's having this dual reality of what the gospel does and producing a humble confidence, I think is really important. And I want to, let me illustrate it kind of in this way. There's, um, if you think about kind of the Christian life, let, let's say you think about this in terms of, of time, okay? And let's say on this, on this graph, did I do a graph last time? I did a graph last time, didn't I? This is so wonderful. Uh, so think about this, on this side is our understanding of sin, okay? Our understanding, I can't even, there's not enough room. Uh, our understanding of our own sin. As, as, as time goes on, as we progress as Christians, we, we tend to like come to a deeper understanding of how broken and sinful we are. As we mature, there's actually this strange dynamic that as I'm growing more in Christ's likeness, I actually grow in an understanding, a keen sense of how broken and sinful I am. And you would think, well, man, so wouldn't that produce like despair and like heartache? Like what kind of progression, what kind of religious life is described by becoming more and more aware of how messed up you are? 
But what we understand for the Christian, if humble confidence is what is produced, if this is the cross-shaped hope for our Monday life, for the Christian, yes, this is what produces humility because I realize how broken I am as I progress. But simultaneously, what we see and what Christ accomplishes for us through the cross, that becomes amplified. There's a correlation between as we grow and progress in life and realize how broken and sinful we are, simultaneously, the correlation of this is that we also see the depth of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And so if we only have humility, if we take out the cross, like, man, if I'm just progressing and seeing how broken and sinful I am, that the more I learn to realize the little I know and how broken and messed up I am, but if you take away the cross and our only hope in life and death, you only have despair. You only have being humbled into the dirt. But when you recognize that as we grow and see how broken we are, that only magnifies what Christ has done for us. Does that make sense? And so, so if, you, if you imagine like if the doctor calls and says, hey, uh, your blood work came back and I uh, just want to let you know we found something, uh, but uh, here's a medication and you should be okay. You don't know how to respond to your doctor until you know what you were diagnosed with, Right. Like if it's just like, hey, you had, you, you had uh, pneumonia and, and here's the prescription or whatever. I know nothing about medicine, clearly. I, I don't even know much about graphs. But, but here's the thing. If you, if you don't know what the problem was, you don't know how to be appreciative of what was offered you until you find out if it was something terminal. Hey, we found out that you were in stage four cancer and we found a way to treat you and you now have a clean bill of health. You now have a greater capacity of appreciation for what the doctor's done, Right. In the same way, when we have a greater understanding of the depth of our sin, that only magnifies our appreciation and the confidence we have in what Christ has accomplished for us. I promise to have a graph illustration every night that I'm teaching during Church on Monday. I, I'm going to try to make a tradition of that. D does that make sense? Are, does that are you guys tracking with me in that? That the gospel, when we understand it, produces a humble confidence. And this becomes the, the combustion cycle, if you will, of Christian growth. That the more we understand how broken we are, the more it instills a confidence in what Christ has done for us. And that produces a greater appreciation. And when we live in that cycle, I mean, just imagine our world and our church and our communities, our homes and places of work, if we are sent into our Monday lives with this kind of gospel-infused motivation for godly living. And so in the gospel, we are simultaneously awakened to two great truths. I am more broken and sinful than I could have ever understood and I am more loved and forgiven than I could have ever possibly imagined. Th those are the two truths. When we understand that, because if we only have one, it's like, I'm, I'm more broken than I could have ever imagined. That's true, but keep going, because you're also more loved and forgiven than you could have possibly hoped. And when those two things come together, they create this beautiful cocktail, if you will, that motivates us in living a life of humble confidence. When your identity is rooted in Christ and what he has done, you are freed from the burden of having to validate yourself through what you do on Monday. And when you also understand, when, when your worth is determined by Christ's work, you are freed from the traps of shame and guilt that hold you back from being fruitful in your Monday life. And so when, when the pressure, so to speak, is off, when you don't have to perform and be fruitful and productive in order to earn God's favor and approval, there, there, there's a pressure that is off that allows you to be more productive. It's, uh, I'm going to use a football analogy here on the fly, but it's, you know, when, when, there is, when there's an offsides penalty, they allow the, the, the offensive team to keep playing, right? And the quarterback knows he has a free play. 
Because regardless of what happens, they still have a penalty. And what does the quarterback usually do? They're like, okay, there's a free play. I'm just, I'm just winging, you know, like they, they're like the pressure's off. Because even if it's intercepted, it's going to be called back. That's kind of the idea of what the gospel does for us, that the pressure is off. And now I can perform and live my life in a way that, that in, some, in one sense is like there's nothing to lose. And that's what the gospel declares over us. Only the gospel can create this kind of posture and perspective, but we won't fully experience it and live into it unless we take up our cross daily. That's part of what this rhythm of coming back to this graph looks like. Part of what taking up our cross daily means is we live more fully into this reality of the humble confidence that the gospel produces. And, and, and or maybe to put it another way, when, when we can now obey God and respond to him in all of life, it means that we have, we have nothing to earn and we have nothing to lose. That, 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 that's maybe a simple way of kind of, when we live into this humble confidence of what the gospel does, when we take up our cross daily, we enter into our Monday lives essentially saying, God, I have nothing, I have nothing to earn and I have nothing to lose. And that can be a freeing, relieving sense that we have that allows us to be more productive, more fruitful, more creative, more imaginative, more bold and courageous in the places God has called us. Humble confidence, that, that is the cross-shaped hope for our Monday life. This is why we continually come back to the gospel. This is why we preach the gospel Sunday after Sunday, not because we think you forget it, but it's because we know we all forget it. We need to come back to the gospel each day because the day, you be, the day you come to trust in the gospel isn't the day you stop needing it. It's the day you realize how much you need it every day. That's, that's, the, that's the message of the gospel. So let me do this. I want to pause. I want to turn to our tables for our last round of discussion. Uh, there are two questions for you, uh, and then we'll wrap up with our last point of the evening. So go ahead and go to your tables, last round of discussion, and then we'll wrap up. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Just our, our last few minutes together, we're going to focus on just this, this last point. So, so far what we've seen tonight, so um, the, the, the maturing disciple who's ready for Monday takes up their cross, and part of what that looks like is that we find our hope in life through death. Our only hope is found in the gospel, this message that doesn't just get us in, but keeps us in and shapes us and forms us for all of life. It's a, uh, it, embrace, uh, it means that we embrace a cross-shaped hope for Monday. That's that humble confidence uh, that doesn't just leave us in the dirt and tell us we're nothing, but we're also declared beloved, and there's a proper confidence that comes with that. And so lastly, what all this kind of builds up to is what it means for us to take up the cross. And, and in many ways, like I said, what, what part of this means is, is living out what we have received in Christ Jesus. Uh, we absolutely believe that the gospel is good news that we receive, but it is news that, that we do something with. It, it compels us, it moves us, it, it brings us into a mission. And that's absolutely what uh, this, this habit of taking up our cross daily means. And so again, if, if you remember, I mentioned just a simple definition of taking up our cross, the daily habit of willingly accepting the high costs of following Jesus. And, and when, you know, maybe you have heard kind of throughout your life, or maybe this is even how you were presented the gospel. Uh, it was in this very simple way that God loves you and that he wants to save you from sin and bring you to heaven when you die. And that is absolutely true, but, but it doesn't do justice to the fullness of what God is doing in and through Jesus and in and through his church. That we are absolutely, it's no less than that. God loves us and he rescues us from sin and he brings us into heaven after death. But what we must also see, those are the treasures, those are the central messages of the gospel, but what we also see is that Christ doesn't stop there. That we are not just saved from something, we are saved 
four or something. That, that is a, again, that, that sounds super simple, but I think it is a really helpful way to have a wider, fully orbed scope of what the mission of Christ's gospel and his kingdom is about. That we are saved and brought into a kingdom. The cross is a pathway to the life that we are uh, d designed to live, and it is a pattern for that life. And the Bible, again, when you, when you read the, the, the Bible, and we'll see this in our Bible lecture in a few weeks, but when you read through the biblical narrative, what we see is that God is very interested in reconciling his people, his fallen sinful people to himself. But we also see that God is interested in reconciling a lot more than just us to himself. In fact, particularly when you read in the New Testament, and there's hints of it throughout the Old Testament as well, is you see this refrain of this phrase, all things repeated quite often. And one of the most notable places is in Colossians chapter one. I want to read this portion. Just, just listen to the wider scope of what Christ has come to accomplish. He, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so you see the centrality, the themes of the gospel, of the blood of Jesus, the work of reconciliation. But you also see that the scope is all of creation. And so we'll, we'll unpack more of that when we get to our, our Bible lecture. But this is such an important aspect for us to see. And so if this is the scope of what Christ has come to redeem and restore and make new, that has then, then all of life matters. All of life matters. There's a reason why the, the people who are committed to the ways and the truth of the gospel of Jesus, who understand that the kingdom life that we're invited into touches every sphere of life, we see that that has implications for things like engaging in matters of like creation care. There's a reason why Christians are passionately engaged in the work of racial reconciliation. There's a reason why economics matters to Christians because all of life matters. These things are not the gospel, but they are outworkings of this truth that is about redeeming and restoring all things. Creation care matters, freeing the presto matters, economics matters, and your spreadsheets matter, making lunches for your kids matters. Uh, what you do in your Monday life matters to God. And again, what we looked at last week, if, if Monday matters to God, then, then God should matter to your Monday. So when we take up our cross, when we deny ourselves, we find joy because we join Jesus in his mission in restoring and making all things new. And, and the work of, of coming to receive and believe and trust the, sorry, not the work, but, but coming to receive and believe and trust the gospel brings with it this natural outworking of living out those implications. And I, I, what I want to close with is this. There, there are just three passages that I want to read for us that I think are really helpful. And, and, and sometimes we stop a little bit too short, but one of the most notable ones is Ephesians chapter 2. If you've been around uh, church, you may be familiar with this. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And usually that's where we stop. And that's, that's true. That's, it's no less than that. 
But keep reading, because verse 10, right after it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace. It is not a result of our own works, but we are also created for good works, for the good of all creation. In the, in the book of Titus, the small letter uh, in the New Testament, Titus, we see a very similar description. Paul says this in chapter 3, verses, uh, verses 4 and 7. 4 through 7, rather. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But keep reading. What does verse 8 say? The saying is, right after this, in light of this truth, the central message of the gospel, and right after that, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so we see in the, in the same breath as Paul is writing about the excellencies and the beauties of what we receive in the gospel, what flows out of that is the desire as a people who are zealous for good works. And then lastly, in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, we read these words. Verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So that's true, man. What a beautiful gospel message. But as it continues, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in, in talk, but in deed and in truth. Brothers and sisters, we don't simply believe in the gospel. We don't simply declare the truth of the gospel. We don't simply give intellectual assent to the gospel. But we daily pick up the gospel by bringing, picking up and taking upon the cross and willingly accepting the high cost of following Jesus, no matter what we face on Monday. And so as we already named, there are difficulties and hardships. There is brokenness. There are trials on Monday. But as is already so beautifully said already, is that Monday also presents opportunities for us to take up our cross, to die to self, to sacrifice our preferences for the good of others, and in so doing, emulating the nature of our Messiah who gave his life for us. And so again, my hope and prayer is that we would be a people who not only know the gospel inside and out, and we can pass the gospel test inside and out, you know, but that we live in such a way in which we take up our cross, sacrifice our preferences for the good of others, and modeling for a watching and desperate world the hope of this gospel that is our only hope in life and death. So a maturing disciple who is ready for Monday takes up their cross and finds that the only hope we have in life is actually found in death. So last thing what I want to do before I kind of send us out with our, our benediction, our closing word for the road, uh, I want to encourage you just to, we, we, this will be a little liturgy we do each time as we gather. I would love for you to just take 30 seconds and just write down uh, your 30 second takeaway. And as I mentioned last week, it could, be, it could be an insight you gained. It could be a question you have that you want to explore further. It could be someone you want to talk to. It may be a very tangible way in which you want to take up your cross tomorrow and the day after that. But what is your 30-second takeaway? And then we'll close here in a second. Friends, again, thanks for tonight. Thank you for being here. Um, 
It really is a joy uh, to, to spend this time with you. And so I hope you're encouraged, hope you were challenged and strengthened together. If you have questions, if you want to stick around and chat, um, I'll be here for a while. So please don't, don't hesitate to, to come up and ask questions if you'd like. But, but thank you for just for your contribution. Thank you for your input and insight. I'm, I'm mutually encouraged and benefited by, by this time with you all. And so uh, as a reminder for next week, you will get an email if you haven't already. It usually comes in the middle of the night. Uh, so hopefully you're not like seeing that right when it comes. But um, for our assignment next week is a reading from uh, Dallas Willard, The Secret of the Easy Yoke, um, from the Spirit of the Disciplines. And then our memory verse is Matthew 11, 28 through 30, the great invitation of, of taking on Jesus' yoke that is easy and his burden is light. And so, so let me end with um, a, just a, a word of blessing over us as we kind of leave this place and enter into what the Lord has in store for us tomorrow. May we be a people who take up our cross and follow after him. So hear these words of blessing and benediction over us all from the Lord Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Lord Jesus, may that be true of us in all that we think, say, and do. For the good of our friends, neighbors, family members, and even our enemies and for the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Have a great rest of your week.